Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we're excited to welcome to the podcast my colleague Margaret O'Mara. Uh, Margaret is the Scott and Dorothy Bullet Chair of American History at the University of Washington, and she's also the author of several books, including The Code, Silicon Valley, and the Remaking of America. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so why don't we just start at the beginning? Uh, on this podcast, we, we like to go back as far as the guest likes to go back. So where do you think we need to go back to to understand the history of Silicon Valley? I mean, I'm willing to go back to even the, the 19th century and the early 20th century, but wherever you think makes sense to start. What is this place? How did it develop? How did it come to occupy such a central place in the American imagination? Let's start with prunes. I I love uh, prunes. One of the biggest lies of my that, life. Actually. I, I, I tweet say, about prunes like prunes. absolutely, like yeah. once a, once a week. <laughs> the biggest lie the man ever told me was that prunes weren't delicious, but they are. So let's start with prunes. <laughs> they are delicious. Uh, good and good for you. Um, let's go back a hundred years. Let's go to nineteen. Let's start with nineteen twenty three. We could start earlier, Danny. You're right. I like to go back way back, but let's start with let's go back exactly a hundred years. When, uh, if you were in what's now Silicon Valley, uh, if you were in, say, on the spot where the Apple spaceship, its multi-billion dollar headquarters, is now located in Cupertino, you would be probably standing in an apricot orchard or a prune, a plum orchard. Um, down the road, the city of, of San Jose was a farm town. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce, the big event every year was Prune Week. Uh, when they would, it was it was the nation's capital of prunes, prune production. The motto was "Eat a prune a day, keep the doctor away." Uh, apricots so, are also fantastic. Look at what they apr- took from us. I know prunes I know. and apricots. We, this yeah. would be a much better place if yeah. we still had those orchards. So it was, uh, yeah. So it was an, another agricultural valley in California, but it also was a. Uh, a bit of a playground for the Gilded Age rich who had bought some for- farms when they wanted to play gentleman farmer. And one of those gentleman farmers was Leland Stanford, uh, Southern Pacific, one of our favorite robber barons. Friend of the and, pod. <laughs> friend of the pod, friend of the pod. Um, and he and his wife, Jane, had founded Stanford University about 30 years earlier, just up the road from that apricot orchard in Cupertino. And uh, and that was kind of the one thing that distinguished this valley from any other. Um, the real, um, you know, but but like a lot of places in the early 20th century United States, you could find garages and old prune drying sheds that had been converted into workshops and, uh, you know, early stage startups of sorts. Uh, if you had the Wright Brothers in Dayton, Ohio, here in Palo Alto, again, dusty farm town, not a lot going on, but you would find um, Federal Telegraph, which was a small company that was uh, experimenting with long-range remote radio communication, which on the West Coast of the, the North America was kind of a useful thing to have. So 
So there, you would find these um, these engineering oriented startups, and Stanford was indeed a kind of science and engineering oriented place. It was a practical university that was not unlike the, the Ivy Leagues, even though it aspired to be like Ivy League schools. Was kind of modeled more on Cornell than on Harvard. It was not a liberal arts institution, and at inception, it was very much a kind of pragmatic business oriented place from the start. And so I think all these things are kind of important to, to understand the ingredients as we come in. Um, and so now you're wondering, how the heck do we get from there to here? And I'm curious, I mean, there were, I imagine, a lot of mind schools around the country, presumably. Mm-hmm. Stanford was mm-hmm. by, by no means the the only one. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I imagine we're going to start talking in a moment about World War II and the mm-hmm. money that was uh, pushed into Stanford and MIT, especially. Mm-hmm. But before we do, could you maybe talk a little bit about like what was happening um, in Silicon Valley in Stanford in the 1930s during the era of the New Deal um, before we get into World War II and then how World War II transformed all of that? Yes. So, um, well, you know, one of the uh, one of the people that shows up on Stanford's campus uh, during the New Deal was one of its great foes, Herbert Hoover, which who was a Stanford man. Um, he was the uh, he he was a member of the inaugural class of Stanford University. He went there in part because tuition was free. Um, don't don't shed a tear, all the all you listeners. It, it, it was free then, and uh, he was uh, he was the great engineer. He was someone who got his engineering training at at Stanford. Went on to a career as a mining engineer internationally. Became a billionaire um, by the time he was thirty five. A truly self-made, as close as we get to our actual self-made man, um, those rare breeds that everyone thinks are thick on the ground <laughs> throughout American history, but indeed we're not. Um, and he, after his defeat in 1932, comes and retires, has a three-decade-long retirement on the grounds of Stanford's campus, and um, is there kind of <laughs> furiously writing screeds against the New Deal um, in the 1930s. But meanwhile, down the road, the predecessor of what becomes later becomes NASA, um, NACA, and the um, and the sort of nascent U.S. Air Force, kind of these early U.S. military experiments and flight and have a have a base just down the road, and, which is approximate to now where um, where Google is. <laughs> uh, if, if, if there were these military installations um, of course, all across the Bay Area and up and down the West Coast in the early 20th century that were, again, the, the seeds of what would come later. So you and you also have in the, in the West these massive infrastructure um, hydrology projects that are going on that are, you know, the great dams, the, these irrigation projects that are designed to alleviate the farm depression that create very cheap and abundant hydropower for the metropolitan areas of the U.S. West, uh, from our town of Seattle all the way down to L.A. and San Diego, that enable this military production to ramp up very quickly. These very, very energy-intensive things like, you know, fabricating aluminum for airplanes and um, and fab- fabricating silicon from sand. <laughs> so, the, you know, these these things are all are all there um, and kind of waiting waiting for something a hinge of history to change things. Can we talk a little bit about ideology here and and mm-hmm. the West in particular and yeah. the go West young man, the California ideology? How is that playing out in this pre-World War II period? Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, I mean, look, the West is the most uh, of any part of the United States, the most dependent on federal 
money and federal intervention from the get-go, the, the, the European-American West, um, from the, the, the seizure and the transfer of land to the building of infrastructure to the actual control of land and natural resources, federal governments everywhere. Um, it is often um, kind of hidden. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's playing out, if you look in the 1930s, playing out throughout California with agricultural subsidies, farm program. And at the same time, you have the, you know, this is also a heart of the kind of anti-statist, anti-New Deal ideology um, is blossoming in distinctive ways in California, North and South, and kind of that understands it's sort of, you know, kind of decrying this uh, federal intervention, particularly in federal intervention in business enterprise as socialistic, as un-American, as uh as going the the end of end of what we as we know it. At the same time, the the West is, um, and the Bay Area in particular is a hub of of labor activism, radical labor activism, populism. Um, that you have this sort of incredible stew of ideas and alternatives to capitalism um, that are being proposed. You have Austin Sinclair running for governor. <laughs> you have uh, a, a lot of um, kind of sort of wide open possibilities ideologically. So what's you know. Unlike Berkeley, where you do have kind of an intellectual community, if you look at Stanford in the 1930s, it's, you know, it's not kind of a self-styled intellectual place. The one kind of ideological through line and the one disciplinary specialty that it's best known for is the study of intelligence, human intelligence, human capability, which is um, half a step separate from and in many cases not separate at all from eugenics. Um, Stanford first makes its mark as a research institution, as a hub of scientific racism. Its uh, founding faculty and administrators were specialists in that so-called field. And the, in the study of, of human intelligence that manifests itself in the IQ test, um, that is a Stanford creation. And in fact, um, the, uh, the developer of the Stanford Binet IQ test, um, Louis Terman, was a faculty member at Stanford in the early 20th century, and his son, Fred, also became a faculty member at Stanford um, after getting his degree in electrical engineering at MIT under Ben Ever Bush, comes back, becomes professor, dean of engineering, provost, and as we'll soon talk about, absolutely pivotal to the development of Silicon Valley as we know it. I always find the connections between MIT and Stanford very interesting because they become so important after the war. And it's really in the 1930s, mm-hmm. this pace, place of public-private interaction that, that, mm-hmm. that sets a model for the form of research that would come after war due to, uh, Van, I've heard Vannevar and Vannevar. Let's just call them Van Ever. Van Ever. Uh, rhymes with Beaver. Beaver. Van Ever Bush. A- and and yes. um, who was yeah. uh, an MIT person, then he becomes important during the war. And it's really at these two institutions, which were not as prestigious before World War II in the way that mm-hmm. they became afterward, that, that this model mm-hmm. was set. And so let's, uh, and sorry, just one more thing. The guy that I focus on, um, Margaret, you've probably heard of Edward Bowles, who is the highest ranking mm-hmm. civilian scientist at the War Department, was someone who who is very, he found it, really helped found you know, so there mm-hmm. are these East Coast mm-hmm. California links that yeah. I found find very compelling. But why don't we talk for a second about World War II? Because this is when Mm -hmm. the government becomes something different. The U.S. state itself becomes something different. And the patterns of research that are formed during and after the war, I really think set the model for the next 70 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is the way, way it is, uh, what happens and how it's configured? 
um, the well, Van Ever Bush um, is critical to this. He is one of the the people called to Washington, um, the you know the academic dollar a year man, so to speak. By this point, he's he's he has it's his one sojourn away from Boston. Um, at MIT, and he's uh, the president of the Carnegie Corporation, and he comes to run the Office of Science and Research, Scientific and Research Development (OSRD) during the war, um, and really becomes the uh, the you know referred to on the cover of Time magazine as the general of physics, um, the uh, commandeering academic science and engineering to the war effort that includes the Manhattan Project, but more broadly is a whole host of projects that have to do with. Um, a lot of them have to do with computing and computation and advancing the, the state of the art and um, moving from analog to digital computing, and all in the service of let's have a more accurate missile trajectory <laughs> and um, refining um, forms of long distance remote communication. Um, uh, miniaturizing computing um, is still in the future, but those all the things, the kind of the the um, the digital digital technologies and communication technologies, all the things, you know things that enable computers to end up on desks and be connected to one another uh, several decades later that's all that's all operative the way that he structures the the way that he structures that is not to call everyone to one central research agency and and have a kind of command and control system but instead to mo- mobilize what was referred to as an army of brains and have um, some folks kind of coming together in certain research labs and institutes but on campuses like MIT and the famous and rad then lab then, <laughs> the rad lab yes um and and then of course you know the only we focus a lot on the manhattan project right um which picked up everyone and dropped them in los alamos and Hanford and oak ridge but actually more broadly there were a lot of other um projects going on all over the country uh, at elite universities all over the country mostly on the east coast because that's where a lot of the research, you know, brain power was concentrated. But you have, you know, the Moore School of Engineering at Penn, at Penn. you have ENIAC, the first um, the first all-digital um, computer, essentially, that's commercialized as the UNIVAC, which is kind of at the very early days of commercial mainframe computing was kind of like a, it was like Kleenex, you know, sort of a, a brand that was used as a shorthand to describe an entire category of devices. So but this really de- de- decentralized academic-based model, um, a kind of very typically American government out-of-sight model, too, even though the government's very in sight <laughs> during the war, uh, is just as defense mobilization of uh, private industry during the war sets in motion the, the, the structure that will become the military-industrial complex during the Cold War, so too does academic science kind of get its form and function. And this and and after the war, even before the war's over, Bush is um, you know, writing his famous Science the Endless Frontier, this nineteen forty five report on this is how we can mobilize for peace and how this is essential for the American future, American economic future. And and that doing so, doing all of this, you know, the basic research in universities has this essential national function and that the government should stay in the research business, which indeed it ultimately does. Um, and uh, geopolitical uh, reasons, uh, uh, the U.S. always spends money on war. <laughs> we're, we're, always, we're always willing to spend a lot of discretionary cash on on things that have some sort of geopolitical rationale. And certainly that's what, what uh, academic science did. 
So could you maybe talk a little bit about the form of research collaboration that arises between 45 and and 50? Because you get an institution like the Rand Corporation, you get more money going into MIT and Stanford. Uh, Actually, a lot of of research that had previously been centered in places like Wright Field in Ohio uh, and the military starts going elsewhere. So you you get this very strange patchwork where the government is funding, quote unquote, private institutions that are mm-hmm. oftentimes making money. But I think it's it's crucial for listeners to understand this sort of post-war, early Cold War pattern of research. And then we could get back into how that shaped Silicon Valley in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in, immediately after the, the war ends, of course, there was a couple of years of, you know, where the defense the, the vast a couple of years of fighting between people. Yeah, everyone's yeah, fighting. fighting. Yeah. And then and there's a real, you know, debate over, um, you know, what is this? Where should this happen? And what is the purpose? Economic concerns are always intertwined with everything. Right. You go to these foundational documents of the military industrial complex, NSC 68 <laughs> and everything else. And the economy is everywhere. And and you look at any 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 of this conversation from sort of post-1945, um, you know, you name it, the GI Bill, all these things. It's like, how do we keep the Great Depression from coming back? Because the one thing that really kicked it to the curb was war. So how do we how do we have a, a new kind of Keynesian normal that, um, that really keeps this all going? And there's a real tension between should, you know, if, if the government's going to be in the science business, should this be focused in the places that are already good and already elite? Should it be Harvard and MIT? Um, most of the people in the room in these conversations were from the already elite places, mostly Harvard and MIT, a little sprinkling of Columbia there, and maybe a kind of a nod to Caltech here, but not Stanford was not in the room yet. So it should be like that. Or you have members of Congress who are like, this should be an economic development program. This needs to be in my state. Right. And so there's a lot of tussle back and forth and really what emerges is a compromise. But you do have, you know, it is remarkable when you look at the places that kind of started that started this race with um, kind of being big recipients of Cold War money in the early Cold War period. So after 1950, the Korean War and then after um, and then with the ramp up of the space program after 1957. Certainly that's where in Silicon Valley's case, things really go up to the next level um, is is, you know, you look at those universities and it's kind of the same ones that are still at the top of the heap now. <laughs> the Cold War universities, if you got to be a Cold War university, you by and large got to stay in that. The, it was, the path dependence is strong. How did you get to be a Cold War university? Um, and then this gets into sort of the micro histories of these particular intellectual entrepreneurs mm-hmm. that were very successful at getting defense money. And, and maybe we could just talk. That's a large story. But how, what's happening in, in Northern California and Silicon Valley? So it does it does come down to Fred Terman. Um, uh, I think, you know, none of us like to traffic in the great man theory of history. This is not quite that. But this is a great example of you know, the secret of Silicon Valley is partially this uh, kind of larger macroeconomic um, geopolitical circumstances that are just get they're lucky. They, they get lucky. But also people on the ground that take advantage of that opportunity and craft and, and grab it. And Fred, Fred Terman is that he's this really extraordinary, fascinating 
whirling dervish of a person who just never stopped moving. Um, and his idea of relaxation was hyper-competitive card games. He never went on vacation. He was he kind of set the workaholic vibe that Silicon Valley has never departed from. Um, really a, a people person, a connector. So Terman, he's from Palo Alto, grows up, goes to MIT. He's Vannevar Bush's first grad student. Bush, significantly, before he was the general of physics, going back to your earlier question about this connection between industry and academia that MIT and Stanford really forge a path for. Bush in the 1920s is, he's an entrepreneur. He is a co-founder of what becomes Raytheon. Uh, he is thinking uh, not only a, a researcher and a, and a teacher and a scholar, but he is, has a side hustle all the time um, and is thinking about commercializing projects. So, so that is a very influential model. So, too, is Terman's experience during the war. He doesn't stay in Palo Alto. He, at Bush's request, goes back to Cambridge, spends the war there, sees early on that this is going to be the new way things work, That and sees that, you know, hears from Bush, after the war, we want to keep this going, and there are going to be a few universities that are, you know, universities are now going to get a significant stream of funding for these types of things. Stanford already had um, some specialization and some expertise in small electronics um, and communication devices, radar, microwave. Hewlett Packard was founded by two students of Terman's in 1939 in a garage in Palo Alto. Terman himself persuaded Hewlett and Packard to come back to Palo Alto to start their company and kind of promise, look, I'm going to, we're going to help, we're going to be a partner with you. And and they and he was. And so he comes after the war, he writes a letter to a colleague that um, I find so charming and revealing of, of what he, his mindset was and said, look, we are on the cusp of a real, a, a new age in science and engineering. This is all going to change. The government is going to stay in this business. And Stanford could get in the game. Um, if Stanford, Stanford could do one of two things. Stanford could do what it keeps on doing and kind of remain a pretty good university, kind of like Dartmouth. It calls out Dartmouth, which I think is a little mean because Dartmouth was, you know, not. I don't know. I spent a year fine. at Dartmouth. Ugh, Hanover, not mean <laughs> enough. No, thank you. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, it would be a sunny Hanover. Um, or uh, the other alternative, and what Terman is pitching is like, or we can become like Harvard. So that's what we're going to do. And so what he they come they come back and early and again he's kind of got this inside track that he's in with the MIT and Harvard crowd. He kind of knows what they're doing which is, I think, significant. The other thing about Stanford, it's a private university. Its charter says, essentially, bring something useful into the world. They have license to do what Berkeley cannot do, what the University of Washington cannot do, what a you know public university there to serve the public and provide a broad-based liberal education <laughs> cannot do, which is completely reorganize itself to build up physics and engineering into and supersize it. You have to cut other things on the way. So Stanford doesn't have a public policy school. Stanford doesn't have a lot of things that one might imagine. It is much more like MIT. It is, you know, people, humanists at Stanford joke that it's the Stanford Institute of Technology. They're not that far off. Stanford now has so much, so many resources and, and that it is able to do many, many of those things well, <laughs> including the humanities and social sciences. But there was a real reshuffling. Um, and let's say faculty were not happy about it at the time. But that positioned Stanford well, but it wasn't the other thing. The 
other thing that Terman does, and he's constantly thinking about how do I get people to start companies nearby? Stanford has 9,000 acres of land that the Stanfords have deeded the university and the, and said you may never sell it or break it up because that was their horse farm. And the whole university was founded after their teenage son died, Leland Stanford Jr. It's actually called the Leland Stanford Jr. University, it's full name. And uh, they and Leland Stanford Jr. had loved to ride horses down at the horse farm. So these grieving Victorian parents said, you know, don't you you can't you got to keep it intact. So Stanford all this land <laughs> that they needed to develop. And um, one of the things they did with that at Terman's uh, Terman was part of this conversation, but so were a lot of other uh, administrators. They developed a re- research park um, for high tech industry. Hewlett Packard built a very nice facility there, headquarters there. Gary and Associates, another Stanford uh, firm founded by Stanford alumni. Yeah. Just a quick question. Um, How does it work that a university and private industry, university builds something and a private corporation is working there? Does some, do they Mm -hmm. pay a VIG to the university? What is the Mm -hmm. contractual relationship that's developing over the course of the 50s? Well, the, the university, it's a little like um, the medieval Catholic Church, where the university owns the land and it sells long leaseholds um, and, and does that now for anyone who um, uh, has a home or a, the shopping mall that is now the Stanford Shopping Center, which is on the other side of Stanford's campus that's on Stanford land. The Stanford Faculty Housing, um, fun fact, where Sam Bankman Freed is currently under house arrest in his parents' home. Um, SBF's uh, parents, they their home uh, is actually on land owned by Stanford. They just have a long leasehold. Um, and the same, so that's how it worked with the with the industrial part too, with not you know, not 99 year leases or 50 year leases, but I think probably shorter ones. Do they give any of their um, private profit to the university or how is the university no. envisioning itself as benefiting from giving these long leases to private corporations? It's all about the people. So the other dimension of it was that there was a uh, term founded what they called the industrial associates program. So if you were on the industrial park land, you got special access to Stanford faculty and students and vice versa. There was a thing called the honors cooperative program where Stanford, uh, Stanford people who were working at these companies could go to Stanford graduate school for free. Um, and it was a symbiotic relationship. Um, these were, programs, very distinctive programs that you that Stanford was offering in engineering and particular subsets of and subspecialties of engineering that were not being offered anywhere else that were very much designed to support what these companies needed to do. And, you know, the early generation, the first generation of electronics companies that populate not just the Stanford Industrial Park, well, first it's called the Industrial Park, then it becomes the Research Park. But not only populate that, but also move nearby. They are um, the the very Barry, Barry and Hewlett Packard were the exceptions. The, these startup companies that were born in Palo Alto. Most of the early generation companies were East Coast based companies that were just opening an industrial research lab near Palo Alto. The biggest employer in what becomes Silicon Valley from the mid fifties through the end of the eighties is Lockheed. Lockheed Missiles in Space, they move into, that's the big, that's the other big, the moment. Um, you know, if, you, if World War II the, the sort of shows this, uh, all of the 
the action around the Pacific Theater kind of sets this in motion. Stanford's grabbing the 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 ring of um, Cold War University, um, the bounty of cold of Cold War money is the next thing. Then Lockheed moving to town is the the, the other thing that sets this makes this all happen. Um, it brings people in. It is specializing in missiles and space research R and D. It almost everything that happens there is top secret. So it's this it's something that you know even the people who work there can't go home and tell their spouses and children what I did today. So it's this hidden story of the valley that's just there the whole time, and it's the powerhouse. How does this incipient California ideology develop over the 50s? Because there is this libertarian element to Silicon Valley that kind of goes through the whole thing. But then everyone's talking about long-haired scientists in the 40s and the 50s. Before we even get to this sort of 60s counter-reaction that that I'm sure we'll talk about and and how this is embodied in someone like Steve Jobs, what's the ideology over the course of the 50s? Why do scientists leave the academy or... or, or develop these liminal spaces in a place like uh, Palo Alto. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, it was, you know, Korea Generation Squares. It was not, um, you know, there were, yeah, the the first generation of of Silicon Valley, if we really, you know, it begins with these big East Coast-based companies that are recruiting young guys out of school um, to to come work for them. They've got crew cuts. They're wearing skinny ties. They're wearing button-down shirts. They're not, um, their politics are kind of, uh, a lot of them are veterans, um, uh, less World War II, more Korea. Um, they're kind of, a, you know, they're small government patriots. I guess that's the way to think about it. Um, Dave Packard is a great example of a kind of a, a early Silicon Valley ideology, which is quite different from the ideology of someone like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, let me tell you. So Dave Packard is a uh, Republican, a conservative actually was very, very involved in um, supporting kind of state and local Republican politics in, in Northern California, um, but was a Republican of kind of the Republican part, not a Rockefeller Republican, but not a Reagan Republican either. He was a kind of he was a Hoover Republican. He was out of a small government, Northern California Republican. But he also HP had a lot of defense work. Um, Packard is is appointed by Nixon as the deputy secretary of defense, in part because for 20 plus years, his company had done so much business with the Pentagon. He understood how the whole procurement system worked. Uh, So, but he also would, you know, give speeches during the sixties at rotary clubs around town, talk decrying the Kennedy and Johnson, you know, great society, incipient socialism, you know, sounding very, very Hoover-esque. Hoover was a friend and a, and a mentor. Um, they were very closely connected. Um, in fact, Packard was on the Stanford Board of Trustees when the Hoover Institution was kind of turned into its current um, form as a as a quasi-independent um, institution within Stanford. And uh, so he's he's a you know that's a great example of this. It's it's not quite libertarian. I mean, he's not a Barry Goldwater person. In fact, he wasn't a Reagan person at all until Reagan kind of until around. Reagan's run in 1980, but even in 76, Packard's like, oh, little, little much guy. So it's a, it's this very interesting type of political ideology that is, um, you know, always very scornful of Washington bureaucrats, but yet knows that you have to do business with them. And, and kind of this, 
old-fashioned patriotism that, you know, this is what we ought to do because this is part of, you know, fighting for the free world. This is part of, they saw them, they were very much cold warriors. And and so that's, you know, we see threads of that, but it's different from what manifests later. And it's quite, even quite different from the Vietnam generation that is actually rebelling against that military industrial complex that it's its own libertarian ideology is about rejecting and escaping from all of that and from having the technologies you're building essentially be technologies of war and that's really you know defense was the business in silicon valley through the 1960s that was where most of the action was happening and that certainly was the main source of money for research and education just a quick question. So they displaced all the ag that was happening basically by the 50s? Uh, it was gradual. I mean, if you go and and there's many a person that I talked to and the, you know, I've talked to over the, the last 20 years of studying this place where they would say, oh, I remember there was an orchard in my backyard. And they were, you know, in the 70s, in the 80s. But it was a general displacement. But if you went there in the 50s and 60s, it mostly would still be pretty rural. I mean, these it, this was very small and... um I think that's part of the the story here is that this was a somewhat isolated, very hyper specialized small community where people lived together, worked together, um, developed very kind of specialist service companies, law firms, venture capital firms, PR and marketing firms that were really good at catering to the growth of these particular companies and industries. So one of the things that I noticed in my work on RAND, um, which is the first national security think tank founded in um, in 46, really gets going in, in, in the late 1940s, is that this was a way that groups previously excluded from the American elite were allowed in, particularly Jews and people not born in the United States and even some women. Um, a critique of Silicon Valley going back a long time is that it's very white and very male. So I was just wondering, okay. is there a different story that's happening in Northern California than the one happening in Southern California with our both nodes in the defense complex. Okay. But it seems like they might have a different tenor. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting. And it's something that I hadn't quite, hadn't quite grasped until I was doing the research for my last book and was, which involved spending a lot of time in talking to retired venture capitalists who are in their 80s and 90s. Um, who had lots of time, who are in the very, very high-end uh, retirement home <laughs> that's that's a retirement complex that's adjacent to Stanford's campus. They all were multimillionaires by the time I was talking to them. But when I was sitting there eating club sandwiches in the cafeteria, um, uh, very good club sandwiches, by the way, there, highly recommend, had a lot of them, uh, that I, I suddenly realized to almost to a person with um, one exception, they were came from very humble backgrounds, and that's how and why they ended up there. They were, yes, they were white men. Yes, they were not, they were Protestant by birth. Maybe they were a couple of Catholics. They were pretty, yeah. They they didn't come from money. They were from small towns in South Carolina, from Texas, from Iowa. They went to Rice University because the tuition was free. They worked in the Texas oil fields in the summer to have earned living expenses. They ended up coming out to Palo Alto because they could go to grad school for free by doing this honors cooperative program at Stanford. They didn't have wealthy parents. They didn't have connections. They didn't have Ivy League degrees. They didn't have 
any of that stuff. They were engineers. And so this is the merit, this is the true merit, actual meritocracy of Silicon Valley. And I think this is why there's that, that idea, that myth is so, is clung to um, today is actually at the beginning, yeah, this was an incredible escalator of upper mobility facilitated too by the broader New Deal order. (laughs) You know, they're all going to school for free or for cheap. Berkeley's 50 bucks a semester. You know, it's Stanford's cheap. The living is pretty inexpensive. All of, you know, all of these things, all this friction that now exists and it's a hurdle for first generation um, underrepresented people in this field. That is, that just doesn't exist. So they really, they they truly were. It's a great example of if you put your thumb on the scale and put enough state spending in and, and are, um, you know, in, in a way that encourages, allows people who didn't have opportunity to get into the system, you can allow extraordinary thing, upward mobility to occur. It's just they were all white men. <laughs> right. Which is a critique oftentimes made of the Fordist New Deal state, that yeah. who they put the, their thumb on the scale for. Um, exactly. So let's, let's move in, into the 60s. And, and what gonna... happens in the 60s? Does Stanford experience the type of rejection of the status quo, military, industrial, military, intellectual complexes that we know happened elsewhere, famously at Columbia and Cornell? Uh, and in particular, how does this lead to, I think, what, what becomes the modern Silicon Valley ideology, which begins to merge really around uh, jobs in Wozniak in the 70s, is sort of mm-hmm. an Atari, of course, of this hippie-ish, libertarian-ish melding. Yeah. Well, it's funny, I think, because so much of the um, the anti-war movement um, and um, the broader counterculture of the Bay Area was, um, you know, what lingers in the um, in the popular imagination is Berkeley um, and starting with the free speech movement and San Francisco itself and like Summer of Love and Gold Gay Park, that Stanford sort of seems like a bunch of squares down south that no one's paying attention to. And actually, there was a ton of activism on Stanford's campus. Like every, um, like all these others you mentioned, there was a, a very vibrant anti-war movement. Um, Hubert Humphrey came and visited a campus and um, people were very rude to him <laughs> in 1968. Um, there were there was a lot of demonstrations. There were demonstrations against the research that was happening at Stanford, um, in particular, uh, the Stanford Research Institute, which was affiliated with Stanford at the time, had been around for a long time. It started off doing mostly agricultural research, wouldn't you know, in the pre-war period. Um, by that point, was doing a ton of military research, including chemical weapons stuff. And um, the the pressure was so intense that it spun off into be a, se- a completely separate research institute, and actually is among other things the birthplace of a lot of things <laughs> that are um, that are instrumental in the commercial computer personal computer revolution. Um, but there was a lot going on, and and also this is all again still a small semi rural place. You go down the road and up in the hills there, you know, there's Ken Kesey, there's the Merry Pranksters, there's um, there's all the the acid experiments, first the sort of official academic experimentation. And then, you know, the the counterculture more broadly, there there's a lot of overlap and a lot of intersection. There's Esalen down the road um, there. So within this stew 
of a kind of weird overlap of technologists and back to the landers. And you have uh, figures who are kind of bringing it all together. One of those, Stuart Brands, the creator of the Whole Earth Catalog, which is devised as a kind of political statement art project uh, directed towards uh, communalists and back to the landers. But it has this now totemic um, uh, role in Silicon Valley's history and and ideas about itself because of its cataloging of eclectic everything um, and also including kind of te- technological tools like scientific calculators and as part of the things, the tools that need to be seized by the people away from the powerful. So, you know, think about if you dial back to 1968, 69, when all this is happening, when Hubert Humphrey's getting egged on Stanford's campus and um, and uh, everyone's you know, dropping acid up in the woods, where were the computers then? They are in the back rooms of Fortune 50 corporations. They're in military facilities. They are um, in your university computer lab, but they're funded by the Pentagon mostly. If they're not funded by the Pentagon, they're funded by the, you know, Atomic Energy Commission. <laughs> you know, you can't get away from it. And if you are a someone within this countercultural stew who is really turned on by computing um, and 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 also, you know, you have a lot of um, people in the field, academics who have been exploring uh, AI, computer communication, who are really, you know, they're not they are long hairs before it was cool. Um, you have people like John McCarthy, who was at MIT and then comes to Stanford, who was the person who effectively coined the term artificial intelligence and who are thinking about not only the possibilities of what was then called man-computer symbiosis, um, but really thinking about the dangers of it and and really trying to focus on augmented intelligence, augmenting the power of the individual rather than the robot overlord coming and taking it over. So actually, that is a good opportunity to just ask a basic question I should have asked earlier is what is being developed over the 50s and the 60s? What, okay. what, what literally are the technologies that are being created? Yeah. So the computer industry building computers, that is not there. It's all on the East Coast, IBM and all the other ones. Everything is happening on the East Coast, including research on computing. Um, I mean, the big, you know, significant breakthroughs in computing um, are are coming, you know, they're coming out of um, corporations and universities, mostly along the Northeast. There's border. RAND, though, right? There's like the Johnny computer. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm not saying not everything. Don't worry. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> the West Coast got some. But what is remarkable when you look at the industry, when we think about like the development of the industry, it was so East Coast focused. What is being developed there is semiconductor technology. It's miniaturized electronics. So first with, you know, just smaller electronic devices, like the things that HP is making. They weren't making computers. They were initially. Um, They were making oscillators and amplifiers. There's a lot of work on magnetic tape and sound. Ampex was another early and very important company. Um, But the, the real, um, you know, the, the beginning of what puts the silicon in Silicon Valley is the semiconductor industry and, and fabricating semiconductors out of silicon. And this is this is essentially miniaturizing computer power going from a vacuum tube, which is bulky and overheats to something that is tiny and tinier and tinier and tinier. The first of those companies is Shockley Semiconductor. 
started by William Shockley, co-inventor of the uh, the transistor, also famous eugenicist later yes, in life. also worked well, with Edward Bowles. He was the second in yeah. command during World War yes. II. Yeah, W.B. Shockley. Lots yes. of, lots so of the, early it, reports written by him. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the cool thing, Danny, isn't it? That they're all connected. There's just, it's so There's amazing. like 300 people and they all knew each other yes. since 1925. Yes, they're all connected. And so, yeah, you, we could just keep on going like, you know, this degree of separation. Like they're all, it is fascinating that overlaps. And and I think that's really important to remember too. When we think about these places growing as assuming like Silicon Valley just was sort of born out of nowhere or what's going to be the next Silicon Valley? Like one place triumphs over the other. It's not like Silicon Valley is successful in part because of all these, connections to MIT and Boston and Rand and Southern California and, you know, everywhere else. Like that's what's the the generative connection. But back to Shockley, who who is from Palo Alto, again, crazy. This is just, he happens to be from there. Fred Terman, again, comes in the picture as persuading Shockley, who was leaving Bell Labs um, and, and starting his own gig. Significantly, no one from Bell wanted to uh, go into business with him or work for him. That should have been a sign. Um, and uh, Truman's like, come home, come home, come home. Like Palo Alto, it's a great place. HP is here. We're doing all these things. Be here. Like start your company here. So Shockley does. And since no one would come work for him, he already worked there with, and worked with him at Bell Labs. He hires all these new guys who are, you know, from all over. Young, again, hungry, not from money, not with connections, have kind of okay jobs, but nothing, you know, they, they see this as their big break. And uh, they all come out and work there. It's within clear within months that Shockley's just gotten the worst boss ever. So eight of them do what is never done in 1957, which is when this is all happening. They get together, find outside financing, which to be clear, these were not rich guys, so they had no connections. Someone's like called his uh, a friend, a ro- college roommate's father who was in an investment bank in New York and the father's like, okay, I'm just going to send this down to my most junior associate to try and help these guys. That that junior associate was a very young investment maker called Arthur Rock, who later becomes one of the legendary venture capitalists of Silicon Valley because the company in question was Fairchild Semi- becomes Fairchild Semiconductor. And the eight guys are known as the traitorous eight. And they uh, include Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore, co-founders of Intel, Gene Kleiner, he was the one who called his roommate's dad. He's the co-founder of Kleiner Perkins. The beginning of Silicon Valley is in this company. And they are making silicon semiconductors. And then it is one of the places a few years later that Noyce and others developed the integrated circuit, which is essentially the microchip. So it's, it's more miniaturized and even smaller. So, Margaret, that seems like actually a great place to end. And we'll pick up the story next time. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone check out uh, Margaret's book, The Code. uh, And we'll look forward to welcoming you back soon. Thank you. All right. Look forward to it. Thanks, guys.